Thanks for listening to today's message. We hope that it will encourage you and help you live out your faith in everyday life. Make sure to download our church app by typing Comox Pentecostal into Google Play or the App Store to enjoy more podcasts, Bible resources, giving options, and more. If you're tired of that song, you're hiding it well. Uh, it is a kind of fun song. So here we are. We still have two more weeks in this series to go. Today is number five in the series, number four in the trees. And so if you're joining us for the first time, I know that there's usually some guests with us. So for the sake of catching you up to where we're at now and maybe as a refresher for the rest of us, let me go through really quickly a little brief recap. Essentially, we're in a series right now on the gospel because it's vitally important to all of us. It's vitally important to every human. It's not just for those who are not yet following Jesus. It's for those who follow Jesus and you know, all our days in between. The gospel is a need for you and me. The gospel is a need and vitally important for people in our community. And if it matters, if it's eternal, if there's significance that you know, the implications matter for everybody on earth, then uh, your awareness of it and mine, our confidence in it actually matters quite a lot. Um, the very first week of the series, we, we did a little exercise where everybody had a slip of paper and we said, in the next two minutes, could you write down the gospel in, in two sentences? Don't overcomplicate it, but just write it down. And that's a good exercise for us because many of us, it's like the, the, the wheels start turning. We're like, I don't know how to articulate this. And so we want this series to exist to help us articulate it. In fact, one of the ways we're laying it out is with these, these five trees and the, the hope and the heart behind laying it out this way is that number one, you get a clear way to understand scripture from beginning to end. Number two, a clear and hopefully somewhat memorable way for you to remember the elements and the essentials of the gospel itself. And then the best part of all is with each of these trees, we see into God's heart in a clearer and better way. So the very first tree is the tree of life, life right? Joanne knows it. She had, she had a birthday this week, by the way. Uh, tree of life, which is essentially a tree of dependence. It's choosing to rely on God instead of independently relying on self and going one's own way. The second tree we call a tree of well, it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But for our purposes, we're using which word? Freedom, Freedom right? God, in, in kind of surprising fashion, offers a tree in the center of the garden, which is essentially his way of saying, listen, I'm not going to be a control freak. I'm, I don't want robots. I want relationship. And for relationship to exist and for God to not have to violate his nature of love, there needs to be a choice for us to either choose God or reject him. And so that tree is introduced into the garden as well. And as we follow scripture's story, we understand Adam and Eve eat of that fruit as well. And I know I've said this before, but it's worth saying again. When you have children, you start explaining the story. There's a moment in a child's life for many of them, myself included, when I was young, where you think, listen, if I make it to heaven one day, I've got to talk to Adam and Eve. I've got a problem with what they did. They really messed it up bad for all of us. But I think the older we get, we realize, wait, I'm Adam and Eve too. I can see evidence in my own life where I've chosen my own way, my own independence, where I've really rallied around Frank Sinatra's song, I did it my way. 
And I paid for the consequences in many ways. It was rough. And so God wants relationship, and so he does offer us choice. Last week, we looked at the third tree. When you think about the third tree, I want you to think about this historic place in Scripture called Mamre, where there was a, a tree, and Abraham is associated with that tree. And when you think of Abraham, I want you to think about covenant. And when we think about covenant, what's the word we talked about last week? Faithfulness. As people, my goodness, have we struggled in fulfilling our end of the bargain in covenant relationship with God. But God is faithful to us. And friends, is that good news? It absolutely is good news. And one of the things I find so fascinating, and I, I, I did my best to try to help you understand it as well last week, was that when God entered into a covenant relationship with Abraham, his intention was to form a covenant family that he could bless, that could carry his covenant blessing around the world. And when he entered into that covenant with them, they followed an ancient Near Eastern pattern for covenants. So they cut a bunch, it sounds gruesome, but this is what they used to do in the ancient world. They'd cut animals in half, and then the two parties of the agreement would walk between it and say, if I don't fulfill my end of this, may I be like these dead animals, may I die. And in the story of Abraham and God entering into a covenant together, we actually read that Abraham is asleep during the process. What a picture of humanity, hey? And God passes through alone. And that's massively meaningful to us. What an indication of God's faithfulness to us and commitment to us. Why? Because he walks through once and he would say, if I fail in this covenant, may I be like these, may I die. And in Abram's place, God walks through again and says, if they fail, may I die. And that points us right towards this fourth tree, the cross of Jesus. Now, last week, I pointed out that after the first half of the Bible, which is Genesis 1 through 11, if that doesn't make any sense to you, go listen to the message online from last week. It'll be clearer to you. After the first half of Scripture, God had three problems he needed to address, and he did through covenant relationship with Abraham and the family that came, the family of faith which you and I are now part of. But after the first three trees, I need to point out that us as people had three problems. Here's the first one. The first problem is this. It's nice that God is covenantly faithful to us, but number one, uh, we're going to die. <laughs> and we were created for everlasting life, but we're all facing the reality of death. Secondly, if we could access the tree of life, would we want to? Because we'd be forever stuck in our corrupted state. Do you understand the conundrum that's there? Remember in the first tree, after humanity opted for sin and opted for their own way, God put a barrier between humanity and the tree of life. Why? Because he was so mad and upset and he had a hissy fit? No. He wanted to protect his people from, in their corrupted state, having access to a meal which could produce everlasting life in them. Who, who would want to be stuck in our corrupted state forever? So that's a problem, it's a conundrum. We have a crisis as humanity, we're gonna die. We'd love to live forever if we understand the story of God and scripture, but if things don't change in us and our world, we really wouldn't wanna live forever. And then the third problem, it's a big one. There's a barrier between us and God, and God didn't put it there, we did, by our own choice. 
all that deathiness and wrongdoing has created a barrier. And it's almost like, if you can imagine carrying a moving box, how many of you moved before? Grown, everybody grown, it's terrible. Well, you carry a moving box and try to hug a loved one at the same time, right? Doesn't work well. That's what it's like to have a barrier between us and God. The Bible has one word that sort of summarizes this barrier in all its multiple expressions, and that word is sin. Uh, the reality is, as you pay attention to Scripture and you live a normal human life, you find out that sin doesn't operate alone. He has two henchmen, guilt and shame. And they're ruthless. They'll take any opportunity they can to cut you down. Because when there's sin in our life, when we continue to follow our own independent ways, uh, along come the henchmen as well to harass us afterwards also. So the human question becomes, what do I do with my sin and those henchmen? And I mean, if you pay attention to civilizations in history, um, there's all kinds of human attempts to try to figure out what do we do with this wrongdoing, with this deathiness, with those henchmen, with guilt, with shame. What do we do with it? And there's sort of Christian version of attempts outside of God's gospel. And then there's other philosophical approaches as well. I remember when I was a young adult, uh, I got invited to a pre-screening of a movie that was being released. And a friend invited me. And I thought, okay, yeah, let's, let's go to this movie. And uh, then I found out, oh, it's a Christian movie. And I'm sorry if this offends you. Most Christian movies are very terrible. So I was like, okay, this is going to be awful. But yeah, I'm going to hang out with friends. That's going to be fine. And then I found out it was based on some book, and I just thought, okay, this is a book that not people in my generation have been reading, it's a different generation. I show up, and it was a theater full of grandmas. <laughs> Bless them, love grandmas. But I just wasn't sure if I wanted to watch a movie with them, but there I was. And so it was me and a few friends, and then all the grandmas, and we watched this movie, and it's called Sin Eater. Anybody seen or heard of the book or the movie Sin Eater? Now. I am, yeah, there's a grandma here who has, yeah. She was probably at that movie. That's where Claire and I met the first time. It was wonderful. Um, I, ever since I was young, I don't do well with movies or TV shows where there's any kind of suspense or scariness. And so I'm feeling pretty confident as a young adult male in this movie theater, I'm going to be okay. But it actually, there was suspense. And then it got scary. And so here I am, and I was looking for Claire because I needed somebody to kind of hold me through this. It was bad. It was not just a bad movie. It was scary. And uh, so the premise eventually became clear that somebody in this community died. And when it came time for the funeral, um, they had particular ways. And it, some of it was loosely based on Christian faith, but it had aired and become kind of weird. And so they go to the grave site. And the dead body is laying there, and there's a piece of bread put on the dead body's chest. And then everybody in the community turns their back towards the dead body. They're all in a circle around it, and there's like big scary trees behind. And I like trees, but not in those movies. And so I'm. And out of the woods comes this man. And he runs up to the dead body, and you're like, this is so weird, what's happening? And he grabs the bread, and he starts eating it. And then he runs back into the woods. And you're like, what in the world is this all about? And then you begin to piece together the story. And in their community, they were trying to figure out, what do we do with all this sin in us? The wrongdoing and the deathiness. What do we do with the sense of guilt and shame? 
And they concocted this idea that maybe if we put a piece of bread on a dead body, it could be absorbed into that bread and then one cursed member of our community always exists as the sin eater. They don't live in community with us. They're, they have to live out in the forest. And whenever there's a funeral, they're notified somehow and they come and they eat the bread to consume other people's guilt. And that will be the one person who's damned for us all. And I was so relieved when the movie was done. <laughs> but it represents what people try to do, right? We try to find a way to offload the sense of guilt, the sense of shame, the deserving sense of penalty associated with sin. And now that's a sort of pseudo-Christian approach. There's other religious attempts to deal with that. Then there's philosophical ones. Then there's ideas like karma and stuff like that. Well, if I do enough good things, then good things should come to me. And if I do bad things, maybe if I do some more good things, it'll outweigh it somehow. Why do we do that? Because there's this human need to kind of offload what's inside. I think it's best summed up, in my opinion, in scripture. When we look at the beginning of the story, I pointed this out in the first weeks. When Adam and Eve made their own independent decision, you watch what they did afterwards, and I don't think this is just what Adam and Eve does. I think this is what we people do, all people. Look at these three things. Number one, what did they do? They hid. Have you ever done something bad and tried to cover it up? Have you ever tried to hide from the consequence? Yeah, I mean, it's in our DNA, unfortunately. It's what we do. The second thing they did is they, they covered up. They tried to sew together their own outfit, but it was their own attempt to make a covering for their sense of shame and guilt. If you couldn't hide something, have you ever tried to cover it up? Sort of spin it somehow? And then lastly, when they're confronted, they blame, right? Have you ever found yourself blaming? Do you know anybody who's a good blamer? See, that's an opportunity to blame a blamer, right? <laughs> uh, and you look at Adam and Eve, and how did they do it? Adam's confronted first, and he's like, no, 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 the woman that you gave me, so I'll blame her, and then I'll blame you, God. So that's a good tactic as people. Sometimes we blame other people, right? And then if that's not working, we'll try to blame, like Adam did, God himself. Actually, you're responsible because you gave this to me. And then Eve throws in another blame in case any of us missed it and hadn't thought we could do this one. Eve shows us, that serpent, the devil made me do it. And those are maybe the three most common things that humans try to resort to when it comes to, to blame, right? Shifting the responsibility elsewhere. When, at the end of the day, if we're honest, we actually just need to accept responsibility. And that's so painful. It's so hard. And I have massive respect for those of us who learn how to do that. As people, we must face the fact that we put the barrier there, and then this is so important. This is not a casual thing. We need to face the fact that our choice of independence is also a direct rejection of God and a personal offense directed from us to him. There is some temptation to think that, well, independence, that sounds like a nice word, right? So let's flower it up, and then we can be like, oh, there's an innocence in independence. And while there might be some truth to that, you have to pay attention to the reality that in the whatever innocence of independence you and I may have tried, there's rejection of God. It's my way versus his. And it's an offense from us lodged towards him. So, with that in mind, what are us humans deserving of when we actually 
Think about it. Uh, probably the consequences of our independence, right? And, and now, I mean, if you have a sense of justice, probably you're thinking, I guess if God needs to deal with us in a particular way because of what we've done, we're probably pretty deserving of that, whatever that may be. So what does God seem entitled to? I mean, if we're looking at God through a human lens, we might think, well, I guess God could be entitled to move on from us. As his created beings, we've made a fine mess of our world. I mean, if he's the all-powerful creator God, I guess he could just sort of crumple it up like a piece of paper we've made a mistake on and toss it to recycling and give another go, restart with somebody else. He could do that. I guess God could also be entitled to just let the consequences of our independence pay us back fully and finally. What do we actually see God do? Uh, to understand what God does, we need to know a little bit about farm animals, Jewish parties, and hypostatic union. Simple, right? <laughs> uh, let me just work with you on a little bit of history. Some of this, I think, is going to be clearer to you than it appears, as you see on the screen right now. In, in Scripture's story of God and his people, I mean, this even comes up with God in his conversation with Abraham, that his people will find themselves enslaved to an enemy. In that case, it was Egypt for 400 years where they were forced into labor to build the Egyptian empire. And God promised, but I will set them free. I'm gonna, I'm gonna deliver them. And if you're curious about that story, if you haven't read it yet, it's the book of Exodus. It's this, this exodus of God's people out of slavery towards promised freedom. And it becomes the single most important narrative in all of Jewish history. And when God pulls off this exodus, his finishing move, his sort of final thing, comes where he uses strong language that death is going to come into Egypt. And I want my people to be safe. And so he gave unique instructions. He said, I want every family to find a lamb and feast upon that lamb. And as you're preparing your feast, take its blood and put it over the doorposts outside your home. And then when death comes upon Egypt, you will be passed over. You will be safe. The Pharaoh of Egypt is going to be so upset over what's going on, he's going to plead with you to leave. He's going to send you with his blessing and off you go. And that's the story of the Exodus. And that became celebrated every year in Jewish culture afterwards. And it was known as the Passover. And so lambs, a one-year-old male lamb that was perfect and pure and spotless, was sacrificed and then feasted upon by God's people, every family, every household, every year. And the lamb symbolized rescue from an enslaving enemy. Okay, so Jewish party, farm animal one, lambs. There's another thing on the Jewish calendar called the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. And this was one of the early things that was going on. This was God helping his people right away, but also forecasting a way that their sin, that sense of guilt, that sense of shame, would be dealt with. And so they would have this celebration once a year called the Day of Atonement, where all the sins were, were dealt with. And back to farm animals. <clears throat> goats were used. You can read about this in Leviticus chapter 16. Goats, two goats were used on the Day of Atonement. One goat died and one lived. 
and the goat that would die, the people would see this happening. I mean, it was a national event. And they would understand, wait, that goat that dies, it's our way of seeing our sin dead. It's like, almost like the sin eater, the bread. That goat is full of our sin, and then it's sacrificed. And they see that dead animal there, and they're like, that's just like our sin. Because of God's sacrifice, our sin is now dead. So that was the goat that died. There was a second goat, and it would get to live. And the priests would lay their hands on the goat's head, and it was like it's sort of figuratively a representative of all the people, and all the sins went into that goat. And then it was taken outside the community, and it was set free. And it would run away. And what do you think the people did? Did they just turn on their heel and walk away? No, they, they actually saw what was going on. They could see the goat running off into the distance. And, and why did God want them to see that? He wanted them to see that not only is your sin dead, but your sin has been separated from you and removed from you as far as the east is from the west. Because inevitably, at some point, that goat is gone over the horizon. They're like, we can't see that anymore. It's gone. Our sin is dead. Our sin is gone because of God who makes sacrifices for us. So Jewish party number two and farm animal number two is goats. Hypostatic union. Incarnation, is that clear? Incarnation, we're coming up to Christmas. The incarnation is this idea that when God saw humanity in our distress and our weakness, when we're at our worst, he didn't fold his arms, step back, and say, I'm doing nothing about this. Instead, he came close. In fact, he got as close as possible. He became human. He expressed himself in, through, and as Jesus, the living Christ, and walked amongst us. The incarnation. And the hypostatic union is just a fancy way of describing the coexistence of divinity and humanity in Jesus Christ. So Jesus begins walking the earth. And there's a fellow named John the Baptist, and he knows, he, he's on to things. He knows what's going on. And in the book of John, chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist sees Jesus and utters these words. And I hope they'll make a little more sense to you now. He says this, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Maybe you've been around Christianity for long enough that you hear a singing about lambs, you hear a singing about blood, and you're like, are Christians just obsessed with farm animals and like weird pagan ritualistic stuff or what? Maybe this begins to make a little more sense for us. Based on the Jewish history and what God introduced through law and sacrifice to serve as a giant arrow pointing towards what God would do fully and finally through Jesus Christ, we begin to understand why lambs matter, even why goats matter. And John, when he says, behold, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world, we're like, I think I get that a little better now. It's interesting, if you're to look in the original language here, when it says the lamb takes away the sin of the world, the language there is not pluralized. It's not the sins of the world, like all the little independent different things you've done. It's the sin, the sin of the world. The human condition of independence. You know, in scripture, we find this word sin, and then we, sometimes we find the word sins. And sin is our common human condition of proneness to independence, trying it our way. Sins, when scripture talks about sins, it's just, these are some of the evidences of it. Impurities of this kind. Read about all the lists that Paul writes through the New Testament of sins. 
They all are connected to the sin, and here is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. How do people respond to Jesus? You follow your way through the reading of the Gospels. What's the response to Jesus like? I think you can, if you want to simplify it, there's two general responses. Those who are poor in spirit love him. Those who know that they're broken, that they're corrupted, when they find Jesus walking in their midst, when they see the kind of things he's doing, when they hear the kind of things he's saying, they love him. The poor in spirit love him. The ones who have a sense of security in their independence feel threatened by him. And to a certain degree, there's a little bit of a political, you know, there's some political people that feel threatened by him, but it's largely the religious leaders and religious groups very threatened by him. Why? Because they found a way of feeling secure religiously or even politically in their independence. The human assertion of independence culminates in two things, as you've heard me hint towards. Number one, politics, which in its ultimate form is a human attempt of saying, we can control the world. And then the second thing would be religion itself. Which, apart from Jesus Christ, in its ultimate forms, religions are trying to say, we believe we can control God. I mean, you look at what the ancient Jewish faith had become, and it was just another human attempt to try to control the world around them, the outcomes around them, so that they could remain functioning like God, and God behaved as their servant, because if we follow these rules properly, then he must do this this way. And it was a human attempt to control God. At Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, these two ideologies joined forces to take God down. <clears throat> now, if you're God, how do you respond to people? <laughs> We've been very unfair to him, I think. I mean, I know I have. I'll speak for myself. And there, I mean, if you have a sense of justice about you, it can be easy to observe this story unfolding and then look at God and think, I mean, I guess he... If he's got a smiter, you know, a big hammer or even a big enough fist, we probably deserve the smiting. How does God respond? At the cross, in the very moments that the political world and the religious world work together to take God down, we find Jesus saying something very powerful. In Luke chapter 23, verse 24. He says this, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. My goodness, that's not an easy response. And if you have a sense of justice about you, we're probably, we probably weren't expecting God to say that. We were probably ready to hear him say something like, damn you all, to hell with you all. And instead, he has a better word, forgiveness. Author Brian Zond says this, the cross is both ugly and beautiful. It's as ugly as human sin and as beautiful as divine love. On the cross, Jesus absorbed sin that was violently sinned into him, refusing to call for 12 legions of retaliation. Instead, Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. With this act of radical forgiveness, Jesus broke the bloody cycle of violent revenge. 
Jesus shed his own blood instead of the blood of his enemies. Tim Keller, who's actually recently released a book on forgiveness, says this, forgiveness is a form of voluntary suffering. In forgiving, rather than retaliating, you make the choice to bear the cost. Friends, our faith finds itself anchored upon Jesus, who took the cost and consequences of our sin upon himself. Friends, as strange as it sounds to hear me say it this this way, I think you'll work with me as I do. Jesus is the goat that dies, so that we see how dead our sin is. Jesus is the goat that lives, so that we see how separated we are from our sin. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far God has removed our sin from us. Jesus is the lamb that was slain, rescuing you and I from an enslaving enemy. Ephesians 1.7 says this, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Hebrews chapter 7 says, Jesus sacrificed for people's sins once and for all when he offered himself. Chapter 9, he says this, Jesus has appeared once for all to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. And in 1 John 2, 2, it says, he, Jesus, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not just for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. So, five trees, first four, tree of life, tree of freedom, tree of faithfulness, and the cross which is forgiveness. So I know I'm preaching to the choir, but I still have to ask you, is this good news? (laughs) I mean, is this not a relief to your soul? As humans, there's a certain economy to the way that we try to handle things like guilt and shame and wrongdoing. And forgiveness is such an abstract thought But it's, it's what changes the world. It's what's changed everything for your life, for mine, and it's what's on offer for humanity and the world around us. Is the good news of forgiveness, does it, does it make a difference in everyday life? Yeah. I think it does. I mean, think about your life. When you've made a mistake, when you failed again at something you really didn't want to fail again at, how do, you, how do you manage? How do you cope with that sense of guilt and shame? You can't do enough good things to repay, to get that to go away. But if there's forgiveness, that's a game changer. Forgiveness is good news when you and I need it. <laughs> and forgiveness is good news when others need it. The reality is, when you think about the word forgiveness, nobody ever deserves it, right? But everybody needs it. God modeling forgiveness as the way of love has the power to change every life, has the power to stop spiraling cycles of revenge, has the power to heal souls and relationships, and to transform our world. Brian Zahn goes on to say this, the cross gives the world a new organizing principle. 
Instead of being organized around an access of power enforced by violence, the world has now been refounded around an axis of love expressed in forgiveness. I've shared the story I'm about to share. I shared it about a couple of years ago. Some of you will remember it. Thanks for your patience with me, but it fits too perfectly in this moment. I need to share it again. I have an aunt and uncle that I'm terribly proud of. I love my whole family, but when I think of this one, this particular couple. My aunt and uncle have all kinds of gifts and abilities and my uncle's a builder and he could have swung a hammer and made a great career and a great business for himself and as a young adult man he laid down the hammer and he picked up a Bible he went to Bible college and then they've given their lives to Africa ever since. They've tried retiring. They came back to Canada to set up life here just just about a year or two ago and they since have been called back and they've gone. And they've planted churches and started movements very humbly, and thousands of lives have been touched. In the 1990s, in the nation of Rwanda, there was the genocide, many of you are familiar with it. In in 100 days, half a million people slaughtered, at least, as the Hutu and Tutsi tribes warred against each other. And when the genocide wrapped up, Here's a nation that's trying to figure out, how do you move forward from this? Our whole nation's been wrapped up in this. And my aunt and uncle were some of the very first missionaries to go into Rwanda following the genocide with the goal of creating a healing community in Kigali, the capital city, that could serve the nation and the children and re-educate, just offer good education and health and let a nation have an opportunity to rebuild. My aunt and uncle were at our home a couple years ago just in town visiting and My son happened to be doing a project on Rwanda, so he was interviewing them, and I actually took over the interview because I became so curious about so many things, and I said, Rwanda is doing so well as compared to many other African nations now. You compare that to where they were in the 90s. How has this changed? Life expectancy in the 90s was 29 in Rwanda. It's now nearly 70. So there's health, there's well-being, there's education. I said, How did they fix the mess? I mean, it had been 100 days of a total bloodbath. My aunt and uncle said, you know, I I said, did the UN do something? My uncle laughed. He said, they had no idea what to do. He said, after the dust settled, after the genocide, they had imprisoned everybody who was involved in violent acts. And they had begun to do the math that if they were to have just court cases for every person prison it was going to take over 200 years and so that's impossible what do you do just leave them in jail till they die what do you do and they decided to go back to something that had been in their tribal experiences in the past that was part of how they would heal and they proposed an idea and they went with it and this was the idea if somebody in prison decides to take ownership and responsibility for what they've done they'll be given the opportunity to go and directly apologize to those that they've hurt if they do that they can come out of prison and they'll have a community service sentence where they'll help rebuild our nation and so my aunt and uncle told me the story and they said we have this one woman in our church who had someone come to her, 
a young man and say, excuse me, miss, I need to tell you that I am the man that killed your son. And I apologize. Now, what is he deserving of in that moment? There's a sense of justice that all of us feel where we're like, I hope she decked him. And my aunt and uncle said, you know, she looked at him and there was so much emotion in her self in that moment. She said, because of you, I have no son. But today I am forgiving you. And because of you, I now have a new son. And she embraced him and took her, took him, she took him into her life as if he were her son. And you hear that story and you think, I, I think I see us in that story. I think I see the heart of God in that story. We're the one who tried to take down God with our own independence, right? And we're the ones that were so deserving of punishment and death and rot in a prison. And God says, it's because of you my son was killed. But it's because of you that my family is being enlarged. I take you in. I wonder if you would stand with me today. Forgiveness is a tough one. It's a great one. As, as you go back to the beginning of the story and you think about Adam and Eve and us as humans, I want you to just replay in your mind what Adam and Eve did with their sin. They hid, they covered up, they blamed. It's not just what Adam and Eve did, it's what we do. Adam and Eve are humanity hiding among the trees from God. Adam and Eve are humanity trying to cover up their mess. Adam and Eve are humanity trying to blame someone else somewhere else contrast that with Jesus no hiding no covering up no blame in Jesus we see God not hide hiding we see God not among trees but God upon a tree exposed for everyone to see in Jesus we see that God is not covering up God is on the tree and he's been stripped naked and he wears our guilt and shame so that we could be clothed with his righteousness and in Jesus we see that God is not blaming instead God is absorbing our blame so that he can give forgiveness the Lord's going to lead us in a song of response and I hope you would join me in just lifting words of thanks from your heart to God. Spirit is within me. 
I think these are helpful for us to think about right now. These are, what are they? They're gifts. And so when we imagine these being sent to impoverished nations of the world to children, we've seen the video clips, we're envisioning a little child with delight receiving it. Could you imagine a child who says, no, I can't have it. I don't deserve it. No, I can't. I, I haven't done enough good or I've done too much bad. I, I won't take it. You think how devastating that would be if that was your body? You think, what? No, this is a gift. You don't have to earn it. You can't cancel it out by doing enough bad things. It's a gift. And forgiveness is on offer to the world as a gift. It's the, abs it's the thing we need most. And we deserve least. And through forgiveness, the greatness of God, I think, is made manifest to our world. I'm going to call uh, Calvin and Claire Von Elisa, if you wouldn't mind just making yourselves available up at the front here. Some of you today have come, and there's a burden, a need, a concern in your life, and it would just be helpful to you to have somebody pray with you today. And these couples would love to pray with you today. We've been through four trees now, one more to go, and I think as we move toward the next tree, there's going to prayer and prayer ministry is going to even make more sense to us. You and I need God's touch coming through our lives and to our lives through prayer. And so if today there's something that spoke to you in the message or just something you're thinking about as you head into today or this week and you need, you need prayer, would you receive it? As we close this service, you can come forward to these couples or turn to a friend and just say, could we pray before we leave? Maybe you're in a boat where you're thinking, I, I don't know that I have received God's forgiveness. I've resisted it. I've tried my own ways. And in this moment, I want to receive. Tell somebody nearby that that's what you'd like prayer for or any one of these people on our team would love to pray with you. Would you join me putting your hand over your heart? Father, we thank you for your good work in our lives. If it... If it truly is a gift from you, forgiveness, then we receive it now. We thank you for it now. Father, we're going back into your world on your mission. And we declare our dependence upon you. These are things we cannot do in our own. Even extending forgiveness, it's a miracle. It's hard to do. Some in this room know their need to do that. Empower them with your grace to forgive, that you forgive through them. Now, as we go into your world on your mission, may your words, may your ways, may the, the work of forgiveness flow through us into the Comox Valley, bringing real hope and transformation here too. We need your spirit. We thank you for your presence with us now. Send us in your joy, we pray. In the strong name of Jesus and everyone said, amen. 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 Well, I hope you have a wonderful day. Children, parents, go get your kids into the choir. Go sign somebody else's kid into the choir. Members, look forward to seeing you tonight for our potluck. Everybody, have a wonderful, wonderful week. Discussion questions are on the screen behind me if you want to catch a picture of it. Otherwise, they're already online. God bless you. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. for listening to today's message. We hope that it encouraged you as you live out your faith in everyday life. Make sure to download our church app by typing Comox Pentecostal into Google Play or the App Store to enjoy more podcasts, Bible resources, giving options, and more.